I would like to go ahead and transition for the uh, reading for the sermon for the uh, scripture at this time. And so let me go ahead and invite Caitlin up and she's going to do the scripture reading for us. Good morning. This is God's word. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer now before we do anything else. God, we bring our hearts before you today. God, thank you that um, you've called us to be the kind of church that just goes line by line through books of the Bible and forces us to confront topics like this that maybe uh, we would be prone to shy away from. And so Lord, would you help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and is helpful for building us all up as followers of Jesus. And Lord, would you help us to have uh, uh, non-defensive hearts and to have clear minds to receive the truth that you want to give to us from your word? God, I thank you that your presence is here among us. God, I thank you that you send your Holy Spirit uh, to be with us when we gather like this. And so, Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me and you would bring these words of the Scripture to life in our hearts and our minds and that our attention and our focus would be on our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So yeah, we're going through the book of Colossians and we're looking at this letter and, you know, Paul and Timothy, they, they start out, they're writing to this, this church, this, this follower, this, this group of Jesus followers in a city called Colossae. And, and they start out by saying, hey, we love you guys so much, really miss you and really grateful to hear about how well you're doing. And then they, they say, and by the way, isn't Jesus amazing? And they spend, you know, the, the, the better part of chapter one and chapter two talking about how just amazing Jesus is and he's so great. And, and then they get in chapter two kind of to the heart of, hey, there's some false teaching that's creeping in. You guys are listening to some false teaching and it doesn't line up with how amazing Jesus is. Don't, don't listen to the false teachers. Stay true to the, the truth about Jesus. And, and then they get into chapter three and Paul starts writing. And, and you know, in light of this, here's some practical instructions and here's some do's and some don'ts and here's what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. And, and last week we really focused in on the, you know, the wives and husbands and the parents and children. And then we come to Colossians 3, verse 22, and it says this, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly 
and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. And friends, this is a section of the scripture where those in the world and our culture, particularly in our neck of the woods, in 21st century America, it's, a, it's, a, it's the, the loud needle scratching across the record sound. And they say, slaves, obey your masters and everything. See, that, that's why I don't believe the Bible. I should have known something fishy was going on last week when you talked about the whole wives submitting to your husband's thing. But now I see why I can't take this book seriously, why I can't take the Christian faith seriously is because of, you know, historical nonsense like this. Now, don't raise your hands, but do you know anybody like that? And we, who are followers of Jesus, who have committed ourselves to the authority of God's word, we come to a passage like this and we're embarrassed. This is, this is why explicitly why we have said we're going to be the kind of church that takes a book of the Bible and we go line by line, verse by verse through it because we're told that all Scripture is, is profitable and useful, but some of you I know, whether it's for your own heart or for people that you know and love, are looking, how could this be useful? In, in the world in which we live in, how could there be verses? See, this is, this is what was used to justify slavery and this is what was used to keep people down. The word that's used here for slaves in the Greek is the word called doulos. And it's a very important word. If you're going to be a student of the scriptures, if you're going to take the Bible seriously, you need to know this word. You need to know the word doulos. Now, depending on what section of the New Testament you're in, and depending on which translation or which version of the Bible you're using, you will see it translated sometimes as slave, you will see it sometimes translated as servant, which is a much gentler sort of a term. And we have a category for servant in our culture. I don't know if any of you have servants. Um, I would argue that every time you go to a restaurant, you have a whole team of servants, your majesties. That's a different argument we can have later, but this, sometimes it's this middle term, a bond servant or an indentured servant, which is a little bit more intense than servant and a little bit less intense than slave. I want to tackle this passage, and I want to, I want to also uh, jump over to the corresponding letter of Philemon. But if we're going to understand this, I need to put four considerations before you. I need to offer you four things, four thoughts that will help you and help me as we come to a passage like this to try to understand what's going on. The first consideration I want to put before you is this. The Bible comes from people and cultures. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, I thought the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God. Pop quiz, is the Bible the divinely inspired word of God? Yes. Not a trick question, yes. All scripture is breathed out by God, we are told. No word of prophecy in the scripture comes from the will of man, but it comes as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that. However, there is a version of inspiration that lowers the role and the part that is played by real-life human beings who come from real-life historical cultures. 
The Christian doctrine of inspiration is not that this Bible fell out of the sky and landed in front of Isaiah, and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Let me go tell people. It is that God used the unique personalities, the unique cultural circumstances of people to speak his divinely inspired words through them. Example, have you ever read the Gospel of John? Those of you who are here when we preached the Gospel of John, took us something like 13 years. I don't remember. It was a long time. Went through the Gospel of John. John, just go read it. He strikes me as the kind of guy who sits there with a cup of tea, and he like looks at like a leaf, and he just thinks about that leaf for a long time. And he's like in love, and, and love, and, and all. And he's just, he's just kind of that guy, right? In my personal Bible reading plan, I just finished reading the Gospel of Mark. John... Mark, telling the story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Have you read the Gospel of Mark? Every other verse uses the word immediately. And immediately Jesus went to this place. And immediately a demon jumped out. And Jesus is casting out demons and healing people. And immediately the religious leader is like, Calm down, Mark. You're stressing me out. That's coming from me. Right? Both are divinely inspired Scripture, both are divinely inspired word of God, but God uses the unique perspectives and personalities and cultural circumstances of the authors to communicate his words to us. We do not do service to the Christian doctrine of the scripture when we overemphasize the divinity or overemphasize the humanity of the scriptures. It's a both and sort of a thing. And we have to learn how to live in that tension. Consideration number two. As you read the Bible, you need to know that just because something is described or even just because something is regulated or certain practices are given, that does not mean by necessity that it is God's ideal. I will often hear skeptics of the Bible say things like, well, the Bible talks about polygamy and how can you take the Bible seriously when it talks about polygamy? To which I say, that person just failed how to read a book 101. Yes, the Bible describes polygamy. Is there a single story in the Bible where polygamy is described and then it leads to good things? No. Something is described in the Bible, just because something is described in the Bible does not mean that that is endorsed. In fact, the biggest polygamist of all of them was King Solomon, and it immediately led to the fracturing of the nation of Israel, the civil war, which ultimately led to the exile of both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. Just read the narrative. Follow the narrative logic. But actually, I'll even go one step further. Just because something is regulated does not mean that it is God's ideal. Divorce is regulated in the scriptures. Is divorce God's ideal? No. We're told that God hates divorce. We're told that it is what God joins together. No man should separate. However, in his divine accommodation, he knows that divorce are going to happen and there are regulations put about it. You could say the same thing about war. War is not God's ideal. There should not be a single Christian who is pro-war because it is the killing of another image bearer of God and it is, it is not the peace that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. But there are at times need to regulate that in the scripture. And I'm going to argue that slavery falls into that same sort of a category. Actually, even just because certain practices are advocated does not necessarily mean that that's God's ideal. The example that came to my mind is 
persecution. We are told as Christians to face persecution with what? How are we supposed to face persecution? With joy. (laughs) Yay, persecution. Jesus says, when they lie about you, you should be happy. How are you guys doing on that? You don't love it when people lie about you? Anybody just love it? This is instruction from Jesus. But does that mean that persecution is God's ideal? Absolutely not. There will be no persecution in the new heavens and the new earth. But right now, while we are living in the already not yet, there are certain instructions that are given to us to deal with a not ideal situation. Number three, you need to have some historical perspective to understand that when the Bible talks about slavery, it exists on a continuum. When we come to the Bible, we read the word slaves or slavery, we, because of our history, 21st century United States of America, we think of slavery in the narrowest, and I would argue, the worst possible version of slavery that has existed in human history. Now, none of it's great, but ours is a particular wickedness. In Galatians 4.1, Paul says, you know, slaves, he, he makes this analogy, like, oh, you know, slaves are kind of like kids, you know, they're, they're in the house, they're loved, they're cared for, they don't have all the rights of an adult. I mean, it's just this very weird way to speak of slavery that doesn't ring true with us, again, because of our cultural context that we come from. In history, you can read about this, slavery would exist for a range of circumstances. Yes, kidnapping, yes, prisoners of war, but people could also sign up for slavery as a way to pay off their debts so that they wouldn't either starve to death or have to go into prostitution. Constitution. Now, again, none of it's great. Ours was the very worst. Intentional capturing, kidnapping, enslavement. In the, in the history of the world, you could actually have slaves that served in a variety of roles. Jacob, a uh, uh, ministry intern, sent me some research about how in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, there were slaves who were doctors. There were slaves who were lawyers. There were slaves who were teachers. There were slaves who served in a wide variety of contexts. And actually, if you were a wealthy enough person, you would try to gather for yourself a group of slaves to have kind of your whole entire own entourage of slaves so that they could have, you know, doctors and teachers and all sorts of different people. Again, American chattel slavery is just agricultural servitude. Throughout the history of the world, Most slaves would actually look like the people who enslaved them because you would have slaves from your own region. You either conquered somebody in war or somebody from your town uh, was in debt and they became a slave to you. White people owning black people through the practice of kidnapping is a particularly heinous evil. I am not saying that any version of slavery is particularly great, but I am saying we need to have some cultural perspective. By the way, lest you think, if you're, if you're a skeptic and you don't like this passage in the Bible, lest you think that we're so evolved and we're so mature and our society has just really gotten it all figured out, I would argue that both ends of the spectrum still exist in our day. Reuters news article writes that there are 1.5 million people, one and a half million people in the United States today who are the victims of trafficking primarily for sexual exploitation. The U.S. Senate released a report last year that around the time of the Super Bowl, 
U.S. police arrested 750 people in a nationwide sex trafficking sting because the Super Bowl over the last few years has proven to be a hotbed of slavery. People go to the city where the Super Bowl is and purchase someone for sexual pleasure. Oh yeah, we're nailing it as a culture. And by the way, that's an extreme example. The book of Proverbs says that a borrower is a slave to the lender. Do you know how much consumer debt Americans collectively have? And I'm not even talking about national debt. That's a whole different problem we'll get into in a different sermon, maybe, if I don't get fired for this one. At the end of 2019, a report came out that Americans have $14 trillion in consumer debt, mortgages, car loans, credit cards, Divided by roughly 330 million people, if my calculations are correct, that is roughly $42,000 per individual of just consumer debt. That includes the little kids back in the nursery. Don't tell them now, break it to them in a few years when they're older. <laughs> but they owe somebody 42 grand. How many hours did you spend at work this week as an indentured servant to pay off your debts? All I'm saying is we should lose some of the chronological snobbery when we come to the Bible. Oh, how ancient, how, how perverse, how, how barbaric. Oh yeah, we're really doing just a lot better in our culture. We've just dressed it up and called it by different names. Trafficking, slavery, debt, indentured servitude. Number four, don't forget that the revolution itself comes from the pages of the Bible. Yes, there are passages like this in Colossians that speak to slaves obeying their masters, but you can't just look at that one passage and ignore all of the other things. First of all, again, it's coming from a particular culture. It's coming from a particular cultural standpoint. I'm going to show you in a moment just how revolutionary even this passage itself is. But 1 Timothy 1.10 says that those who are enslavers or those who are kidnappers will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you read the old King James version of that verse, it says man-stealers are under the wrath and the judgment of God. If you read 1 Corinthians 7.21, the Apostle Paul says to slaves, if you can become free, by all means, do it. Take advantage of that opportunity. And don't forget what we read in Colossians 3 a few weeks ago where it says, in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Friends, you and I don't understand how truly radical that verse is. We don't even get it. It doesn't resonate with us the way that it should. That a, that, a, that a prominent religious leader like this is saying all of the things that we use to distinguish ourselves and to be better than other people are wiped away in Christ Jesus and we all come to him equally loved, equally forgiven, equally redeemed. Now, this leads me to the story of... Onesimus and Philemon. So, if you skip ahead a little bit in Colossians, I'm going to borrow from next week's passage officially. Verse 7 of chapter 4, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, 
faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus is named as the one carrying the letter. And in classic uh, first century Greco-Roman passage, the one who was carrying the letter would be the one who would stand up in front of the body and would read the letter out loud. Tychicus, we're pretty sure, is the guy who actually planted the church in Colossae. But then look, it says this, verse 9, he is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything. They'll tell you about everything here. Okay. See, you just read that like, okay, cool. Two guys. What's the big deal? This is shocking because Onesimus is a runaway slave of one of the members of the church in Colossae. And look at what he does. Tychicus, the guy who planted the church, he's a faithful minister. The word there is diaconus. That's where we get our word deacon. means servant. So he's a deacon and a fellow servant in the Lord. Guess what Greek word is underneath that? Doulos. Tychicus, the guy who planted the church, is a servant and a slave. Onesimus, the guy who is legally defined as a slave, is what? A dearly loved brother, one of you. Chew on that for a minute. Chew on that for a minute. Yeah, the leader, he's a servant and a slave. Onesimus is one of you. The letter of Philemon is a short little book of the Bible. Watch us do this. Hold, hold on to your seatbelts. That's not how it's the saying. Hold on to your hats. Buckle up your seatbelts. I just mix them together. That's how I do this. Flip over to Philemon if you, if you have your Bible or your app. Let's learn a little bit more about the situation. Verse 1. Companion letter sent at the same time to the church in Colossae, but specifically to this guy, Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Same two guys writing it. To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. To Apphia, our sister, probably his wife. And to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. He's greeting the whole household. And by the way, Philemon and, and Apphia would appear, host the church in their home. If any of you are a community group host and you have a group meeting in your home, Philemon is your patron saint. Congratulations. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty standard Pauline greeting. By the way, it would be fairly obvious that Philemon is someone of means. He's got money. He's got a house big enough for people to meet in. He's got employees. He's got slaves. Verse 4, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. He's, he's saying, I want you to be effective. I want you to really know Jesus, continue to love Jesus, and that your ministry will be effective. For I have great joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you brother. Wouldn't you want it to be said about you that you were a refreshing person? Like a, just a delight to be around? Verse 8. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. Now I love that verse. Paul is saying, listen, brother, I could flex on you. I'm an apostle, church planter, world famous, I'm asking you on the, on the basis of love to consider what I'm about to say. 
I, Paul, as an elderly man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. There he is. I became his father while I was in chains. Um, We're not entirely sure how this all has happened, but it would appear that Onesimus has run away from Philemon. He ended up in Rome. Maybe he intentionally sought out Paul. Maybe just through God's providence, circumstances lined up where he meets Paul. And it seems like Paul led him to faith in Jesus Christ and took him under his wing as a father, as a mentor. I'm appealing to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is both useful to you and to me. That's funny because the name Onesimus means useful. That's literally what his name means. But because he ran away, brought harm to the household of Philemon, he's a useless, worthless guy. And Paul said, oh, he's very useful to both of us now. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending you my very own heart. It's the Apostle Paul. Do you hear the tenderness there? My very own heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. It's like, (laughs) Philemon, you should be serving me, but instead you sent your slave. How nice of you. I'll keep him here. I wanted to, but uh, I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. Perhaps this is why he was separated for you from a brief time so that you might get him back permanently no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a dearly, Loved brother. We just don't see how radical this is. No longer a slave, but a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me a partner, will you welcome him as you would welcome me? I want you to treat Onesimus, the same way that you would treat me, Paul. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul's saying, if he stole from you, if he caused disruption, financial hardship, I'll pay it back. I'll pay the debt that he owes. Does that remind you of anyone? I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. (laughs) Not to mention that you owe me even your very self. All right, so there's still a little bit of leadership pressure from Paul. By the way, I'll pay it back. You know, I want this to come from your own free will. Just remember, you owe me your whole life, brother. (laughs) That cracks me up. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. It's just, just, mm, it's, it's good leadership, Paul. It's just like, hey, I know you're going to do not just what I'm asking, but even more. So, thank you, buddy. <laughs> uh, the Bible's hilarious, you guys. You need to read it. It's so fun. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers, I will be restored to you. 
Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Friends, do you have any idea how radical this is? What Paul is advocating for in a, in a society, Greco-Roman society, was so defined by your status. Slaves and then, and then children and women and, and men and, and, and working class versus ruling class and philosophers and just all of the different social stratification that existed in that culture. We can't even see it because of the cultural lenses and the blinders that we have on. But Paul is advocating for a type of societal change and transformation that is just radical. And this radical revolution, friends, cannot be explained because Paul was so radical. It's because Jesus Christ and the gospel is so radical. This can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember earlier I used that word doulos, servant, bondservant, slave? See, Paul is a man who's shaped by the gospel. He's giving these instructions in Colossians and he's giving these instructions in, in, in uh, Philemon from the foundation of the gospel. Like in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that we should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Friends, pop quiz number two. Is Jesus fully God? Yes, God of true God, light of true light, not subordinate to, but co-equal and co-eternal for all of eternity with the Father, though he exists in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a, guess what our word is there? Doulos. You think it's radical for Paul to tell Philemon to treat his slave as an equal, as a brother in Christ? How much more radical is it that the God of the universe, the one who spoke the stars into place, lowered himself and took on the very nature of a doulos, became a slave and died the lowest possible death, even death on a cross so that our freedom could be purchased by his blood. There are no words to describe how shocking and radical and and upside down and inside out the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God himself became a man, not just any man, became a slave for us. In Romans chapter 6, same apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Rome and he says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey. Paul is, is uh, he's quoting Bob Dylan here when he says, you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> yes, Paul, listen to Bob Dylan. Don't worry about the timeline. I know what I'm talking about. You're going to offer yourself in one of two directions. Either 
a slave of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of, right, of obedience that leads to righteousness. But thank God, although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. There's, um, in politics, sometimes there's this term used of the benevolent dictator. Uh, and I know you're like, what is about to happen here? Just trust me, go with me, okay? Uh, the idea being in politics, there's always inefficiency, there's always conflict, nobody can ever see eye to eye. The only way that you could have a perfect government is if there was one person in charge and that they were perfect. Problem is, as I've been paying attention to the news cycle and watching the debates, I can't find that person yet, Okay. And so we say Jesus is king, right? Jesus is the one true king because he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth and he is 100% loving and good and for us. So Paul uses that language about instead of being enslaved to sin, which leads to death, we're now enslaved to righteousness. We're slaves to obedience that leads to righteousness. A few verses later, it says we are made slaves with God. And yes, the same apostle Paul in Galatians says we're no longer slaves, but we're sons. But think about this. If we were to be owned by the one who shed his very blood for us, who is perfectly loving for us, where else could we be that would have that much freedom? Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and death. And we have now been transferred to the domain of his rulership where there is perfect liberty, perfect freedom, perfect love, and perfect grace. How good is that news? John Eady, a Scottish preacher, said this. He said, your masters on earth have no absolute right over you. The shekels they may have paid for you can only give them power over your bodies, time, and labor. But the Lord has bought you with his blood and therefore has an indefeasible claim on your homage and service. There's no freer place to be than to be owned by Jesus Christ. And I remind you that it's from that foundation that Paul can write in Colossians 3, in Christ, there is no more slave and free. There is no more slave and free. Those distinctions, those things that we use from an earthly perspective to make us feel better than someone else are erased because we all come to the foot of the cross equally enslaved to sin and death and equally in need of the freedom that Jesus offers us. Oh, man. So revolutionary. Now, let me offer you a couple thoughts in closing here because maybe you're saying, all right, well, that's well and good, um, but we don't live in a culture that practices slavery explicitly. Praise God for that. How do I, how do I live this out uh, you know, masters and slaves and I don't, I don't own other people and I'm not owned by anybody else. Okay, that's true. But going back to what I said a minute ago, we might not be all quite as free as we think we're free. And issues of, of power and authority still are in play. It's not a direct one-to-one relationship, but there are still some things to think about. Let me offer this to you to think about. Number one, 
if you are in a position of power and authority, I want to challenge you to use it like Jesus. So, bosses, teachers, parents, uh, law enforcement, you have power, you have authority. No, it's not the exact same kind of authority that's, that's described here in the scriptures and, and certainly not like uh, the type that was practiced in American slavery. But you do have power, you do, author- you do have authority, and the challenge is use it like Jesus. What did Jesus do with his power and his authority? He used it to protect the vulnerable. He used it to set the captive free. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. He didn't lord it over us. He died for us. So as you look in your life and you take assessment of where you do have authority and power, the challenge for you is to use it like Jesus. Number two, for those of you who find yourselves under authority or power, like in, like in Colossians, we read, you know, don't just work as people pleasers. You're working under the Lord. Yes, that person has power and authority over you. Temporary. You serve the Lord Jesus. And that will be for all of eternity. Are you working hard? Are you, are you being a person of integrity? Are you, uh, are you cutting corners? Taxes are coming up. You are under that authority. Sorry. Are you cutting corners? You, mm, a little bit. Or are you living as though, yeah, I give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but I'm going to give to God what is God's. And lastly, we have to be radically committed to equality before Jesus. It is so easy to slip back into these worldly patterns of thinking, whether it's gender or class or socioeconomic status or any such thing. None of that serves as our basis for our value, our identity, and our worth before Jesus. One of the beautiful things about the church of Jesus Christ should be is that there is no separate table for the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and for a janitor. All come to the table of Jesus Christ. We all eat of the same bread. We all drink of the same cup. We all share in the same spirit because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism overall. Friends, we must be radically committed to equality at the foot of the cross. We all come as equal beggars and we all leave equally adopted as sons and daughters. How good is that? So in a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And as we eat and we drink, we need to repent of any of those attitudes that persist. And we need to rejoice that we are set free in Christ Jesus. In a minute, we're going to sing. We're going to lift up our voices and sing with one voice. Because we all share in one spirit. There's one Lord and one Savior. Such an amazing truth. Now the real challenge is living it out. Lord, we bring our hearts before you now. Jesus, we thank you that you lowered yourself, that you became a slave for us, that you would set us free from the slave masters of sin and death. Jesus, thank you that all who trust in you receive 
forgiveness and pardon and freedom, and all who trust in you, repent of their sins, and place their faith in you, will live for eternity in your presence, in the new heavens and the new earth, where all sin and brokenness is done away with for all time. Lord, would you help us to live now in light of the eternity that awaits us? And even now, as we come to the table, and as we lift our voices to sing, would you help us to do so with one heart, one unity that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful, Father, for you. So thankful that you sent Jesus. Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, yet he paid the price that we deserve to pay. Father, forgive us when we, even though you set us free through Jesus, that we continue to subjugate ourselves to the figurative slavery, Father, the bondage of sin. And we frequently, every day, we choose that over you. Father, forgive us. Father, at the same time, we are so thankful that we get to rejoice that we are forgiven, Father. Rejoice in your grace, Father. Rejoice in the most exciting news that have ever happened, Father, that we are forgiven. We have to feel the weight of that sin, Father, so we fully understand how the excitement, the amazingness of your grace and that it's forgiven, Father. And we thank you so much for that, Father. And I pray that each and every one of us, Father, come out with that, that joy that comes from only knowing that how amazing it is that our sins are forgiven, Father. And we thank you for that. Amen. When you came in, you should have received the cups for communion. You can now partake in communion, and then after that, stand and sing and worship with us.